So I've done a few real estate deals and I was like, Hey, I want to, I want to build a skyscraper. I met this guy down in Miami and he just finished building like this 42 story condo project. And, and I was, it was a kid and I was like, and I say kid, he was like 28. What? He was like 28. And I was just like, dude. Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. Welcome, welcome to the Action Academy podcast. I'm your host, Brian Lubin, bringing you the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps for you to earn freedom in your life. Let's get to the point today. Let's keep it short and sweet. You guys already know who is on. It is Mr. Jake Harris round two. If you are listening to this and you haven't heard Tuesday's episode, highly recommend going back and listening to that one. That one has so many gems in just overall life lessons, intrinsic values that you need to make it in this game in any profession, at any level of success. His story was so inspirational that we had to spend the entire hour on that. And now, this episode, we are doing 100% commercial real estate. We try to get to hospitality, but we don't make it there because he has so much information about commercial real estate that I just let him unload. So you are probably going to have to pause and rewind at different points and different parts of this episode to get the maximum value out of it. But we talk all things commercial real estate, what to look for, what to avoid, what you should do in your due diligence and your underwriting, what we should look for when it comes to lease terms and how we can value add the best way in commercial deals. Just a wealth of knowledge. So sit tight today. Also, if you are listening to this before 10 a.m. Eastern, go and subscribe to the newsletter because I'm going to write up every single thing that Jake talks about on mic and off mic, which is even more valuable, all the advice he gave, I'm going to write it all up into a newsletter and send it out. It's going to be a five minute or less read as it is every single week. If it is 4, 10 a.m. and you're listening to this, subscribe to the newsletter. It is in the show description in the show notes. If you're listening to this after 10 a.m., subscribe to get all the bonus items and takeaways from the guests from next week. Because this is something that we're going to continue, and it's another way to add more and more value to all of you guys. And it's free, 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 free. Go do all of that. Lastly, as always, the link to apply for GoBundance, if you're accredited, is in the show description. Jake and I talk a little bit about GoBundance again. That's where we met. And this is the type of conversations that we constantly have within the group. So that's the power of Mastermind. And he talks about that in the back end of the show. So without any further ado, Mr. Jake Harris, part two. Jake Harris, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. How are you? I am doing well, my friend. And today is going to be another one that I equally have fun with because the first one, we went off on a tangent, man. We went off on a little bit of inspiration. 
Well, motivation. Yeah, I don't think we talked about real estate at all. Yeah. I don't know what we actually talked about because I black out. Uh, usually when these things, like my wife asks me, what do you talk about on these podcasts? And I was like, I have no idea. And usually when I see snippets or people create the little 15, 30 second little things, I was like, oh, wow. I said that? Wow. That sounds insightful. Yeah. Wow, that's so clever. No. Oh and my you, gosh. That guy is so smart. And you start uh, going off on a tangent and then, yeah, you completely black out and then you start regurgitating everything that your subconscious brain like holds and you're like, whoa, hold on a sec. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's like, where'd that come from? Did I say that? No, I didn't say that. I love it, brother. Today, I want to break it down into two parts. Maybe we go the full hour, maybe not. We'll see where we want to end up. But today, I want to talk uh, super tactics, like yes. just get down into the nitty gritty. Uh, if, if possible, I'd like to break this into almost two halves. Like first half, we can just talk about pr- core principles of commercial real estate, what to look for, what not to look for, what to see and be like, okay, I got to run away screaming from this deal, just commercial real estate basics. And then in the back half, hospitality specifically, because that's a really interesting niche. And that's not something that a lot of people are looking into to your point in the last episode. So I want to talk about what we're looking for there, what draws us in, what scares us, how to underwrite stuff like that. So let's begin with commercial in general. Walk us through your current allocation, your current portfolio, and then like how we built this over the years. Because I know that you were flipping all the houses and then you jumped into commercial, but I don't really know about the gap between the two. Yeah. So there's some overlap. And really when I was doing single family investing, I got to doing it at scale. So we were buying and we would have, I don't know, like a hundred flips going on. And that was, and really, as we started looking at it, we make 20 grand, we make 30 grand, we make whatever. And so it it had a nice role to that when you're doing 20, 30, 40, $50,000 a house and you got a hundred of those in the pipeline is it was nice profit, but it was a lot of work. It was a hamster wheel. And so then what happened is a few kind of commercial deals came across my desk and it was like, oh, hey, we can go do this one uh, for million five and we'd fix it up and we did it. And then we make $500,000 and it was like, whoa, that's like, doing 10 deals or 20 deals. Like, whoa, like that was not any harder than doing a single family house. That was not any harder. And so then we were looking at it was like, oh, maybe. And the the realization was that it's the same amount of work. Like, I don't care if it's a $100,000 house or a $25 million deal. It's like essentially the same amount of work. It's the same steps, the same mechanisms, the same thing that you're going through throughout that process. And so it was, I felt very nervous, especially in a declining value when I started initially investing of doing high dollar amount, like houses, single family, Mm -hmm. the amount of people that can afford a million five house in some of these markets is a very small pool and it's very uh, subjective to someone's individual taste, a one and a half, two, three million dollar house. Like in, you know, there, those do exist. They take sometimes a very long time to sell, or you have to take a very big haircut in the price. And we've done some of those, but it's a little bit more dicey, but like a $2 million commercial deal or $5 million commercial deal, like lots of people are buyers of that. And so to me, it seemed risky. So we needed to do scale 
And it couldn't be by doing more houses because we couldn't physically or get enough deal into our funnel. So then it was like, how can we do bigger deals? Well, we were, or I was nervous about doing bigger dollar amount houses. So then that became that natural progression to layering into commercial deals. Those have then subsequently grown over time. And so I have some deals that are 30 five, $40 million plus deals. And I have deals that are two, $3 million. And so when I, I actually feel like those five to 15 is like a good space to play in because it's above the mom, pa kind of investor. And I say mom, pa investors, it's the guy that's got like a 1031 exchange. They got a million bucks that they're rolling out. Mm-hmm. They're they're not basing their investment decisions on fundamentals. They're basing it on avoiding a tax bill or it's down the street. It's doctor that wants to go buy this office. Him and his collective country club friends can buy that deal. And so once you get a little bit above that, and it's going to be subjective to each individual market, sometimes that might be one or $2 million deals that might be five or 10 in other markets, but there is some kind of like, the entry level commercial real estate investor that doesn't actually get, and and maybe they're a bigger sucker or they do less due diligence or something related to that, where the pricing, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Then you get above those investors is now what I like is it's this gray area. It's not institutional quality. You don't have sophisticated models or capital that you're competing against. And so then when you're not competing against an institutional buyer, but you're also basing your investment decisions on some kind of fundamental approach is there's less buyers available. And so for me, it is like I can structure a better deal to your question about what are deals that you should run away from. And I go, really, there's very few deals that you should run away from because it depends on the way that you structure those deals. There, of course, are very extreme cases of this where you can go get uh, contaminated land that may take 10, 15 years to clean up, and that may cost you millions of dollars to do that. But I go in the right structure or the mechanisms is you give me $10 million to clean up this land, and then I'll take it and do a deal. That could be the right deal structure. And so what you're trying to do is understand the dynamics of what is that deal, that way you're approaching it. And then also depends on your timeline to that or in your business plan to execute whether it's going to be a good deal. So you may do something that would be a terrible deal if you were trying to get out of it in the next 12 months. But that same purchase price may make sense if you are trying to add value or something that you're holding on for 10 plus years. Okay. And so understanding like what is your business plan? What is it that you're trying to achieve helps you then also understand the structure of the deal that the deal needs to be. And these are ultimately kind of business decisions. It gets and removes itself from some of the valuations that like a Zestimate is giving or a Zillow or as a single family space, like a single family home is oftentimes worth more money vacant than it is occupied. That is not the case in commercial. It's all about leases. Yeah, it's all about the leases. And so something that is vacant 
can be worth little to no money. And so understanding who and how it's going to be occupied or who is the tenant right now, what is their credit worthiness? A lot of those things are then become variables of making your investment decision on the commercial side. And the fact that there's more complexity to it a little bit harder. And then there is this gray space that allows me to structure deals that are beneficial to me or to our investors out of the gate is something that I'm uh, looking towards and for the specific deals that I'm investing into. And you're talking the five to 10 million range is the sweet spot? Typically. And so I say it's, it's three to 25, three to 30. Again, that's going to be subject to each individual market. I've just also found that, you know, as of late, the government went and printed a bunch of money. And so sure. some of those like $3 million deals are less appealing or they maybe that's pushed up to five institutional capital. So the Blackstones, the Carlisles and Blackrocks and the big institutional investors, they've started moving down the chain because they're, they, they want to do only $50 million deals. To the illustration is it's the same amount of work to do a $5 million as a, to do a $5 billion deal, like almost the same amount of work. They're paid on fees and they're also paid on, they go do 20% return on a $100 million deal. There's $20 million profit. They do that on a $100,000 deal. It's $20,000, the same amount of work. And so they're like, they want to be rewarded for the work that they're going to do. And then those numbers become much more significant. And if you can do bigger deals. But oftentimes that's because they have tremendous track record, an amazing ability to raise capital and their cost of capital is like next to nothing. I know that there was a a rental fund that I was doing some work with. They had a $500 million line of credit at 0.25% interest from. Oh yeah. You told me. Yep. So I go when their cost of capital is 0.25% and it's half a billion dollars. Is your money cheaper than no? Impossible. Yeah. And so I was like, so if that's who you're competing against, ultimately you have a higher risk profile and potential losing money because your cost of capital is more significant. So I don't want to compete against them because they're better. Their cost of capital is better. Their team, they're smarter. They're more sophisticated. They're doing things on a, in a better way. So I don't want to go compete with them. And that's why I say that three to 30. And oftentimes it narrows down to maybe that's five to 15 or five to 25. For me, five, $10 million deals seem quite appetizing for some of the things that we're looking at. So we got a buy box established here. And then, so I know that the three different levers to pull in one of these deals is like rate terms and purchase price. So that's what you're always looking for. And then obviously like the lease length. So how are you normally seeing people finance these? And I'm, I'm asking this question just to set it up to us taking a buyer's journey, right? talking to the person that is listening, that is maybe a multifamily investor, maybe they're a single family investor, maybe they have 10, 20, 30 single family homes or multifamily units, and they've got some equity, they've got some cash flow, but they've heard about commercial real estate and they know that's the next level up. Walking, Let's walk them through, okay, here's where you're at right now. Here's how you're going to go into taking down this first commercial deal and what this looks like. Yeah. So that's, there's a lot of things that to, to unpack in that. And so let's talk about this is I think the big misconception that people have about commercial real estate is that it's going to be easy. 
or there's mm-hmm. not going to be any work that is going to just be mailbox money. And I, I have yet to find that to be the case as an LP investor. When I've invested into other people's deals, that is very hands-off. I don't, I'm not the one that's responsible for solving those problems, mm-hmm. but I give up control. And so I'm giving them that money to invest into that commercial deal or to invest into a business or whatever that is, as that kind of limited partner. And then I receive distributions and and cash that's coming in off of those. But when you're actually buying a deal, when you are the sponsor, and then you are going to have to do work and it is going to be work. And because even with net lease deals that we have, you have stuff come up. Oh, by the way, there's a pandemic. Oh, the city decided to do a bunch of work on the street out in front of your property. And there is driven by, you know, traffic counts. So they want a reduction in rent. The, the, a bunch of other things, you're just always dealing with that. And so if you're looking for a stress-free or no work, I've yet to really find that there are a few absolute net lease deals that exist, but those are traded at very low cap rates because that's what's been priced into the pricing. So let me talk you through that because the tiers or qualities of a good deal, because that's another thing that I get asked often is people like, I want to buy a good deal. What's a good commercial deal? And I'm like, I have no idea (laughs) what is a good deal for you. I know what is a good deal for me. I know what my skill sets are, what I'm looking for. I know what I'm looking from a cash flow perspective or a value add component. And to that example is like, there's people that are looking for, I do not want to do any work. Okay. Okay, So let's forget those people. Let's completely. Yeah. Those people are not listening to this show. These people are willing to work and they want some damn cash flow. And they've heard about triple net lease and they got a little turned off. Okay. Yeah. And so if they first <laughs> divorce themselves from the idea that it's going to not be work, I, I'm looking for things that have some value add components to it because I want to be able to toggle and control my destiny moving forward. And so when that looks like that is there may be some vacancy or a lease that is coming due soon that maybe is under market rent or under market rates. And so in commercial real estate and people that are smarter than me have given an example of this, you can do a value add in commercial real estate while you're in escrow. That is very difficult to do when it's a multifamily building or hospitality or something else. So you're like, Uh, I'm confused. How can you do a value add on a commercial building when you don't actually own it? The reality is that most commercial real estate is valued on leases. The value add is the lease. So what Mm -hmm. you need to do is just go find a tenant or lease up that space. And you can do that and start advertising while you're in escrow with the seller's permission. Say, Hey, I'm interested in buying your shopping center, your retail center, your industrial building, whatever that has vacancy or is hundred percent vacant or something like that. But I want to advertise that leasing. I've also found that brokers traditionally are pretty lazy. They don't really want to do work. They don't really care. They'll put a small sign out 
somewhere on the property. Oftentimes, maybe you've seen it. It's like overgrown, sun-drenched, four leaves. And like that is the extent of their marketing for that property. We're waiting for some random person to look on CoStar or drive by that thing, call me up and say, I need that land or that building or whatever. And that's the extent of their marketing. And so technology has allowed this to evolve much faster. And so when I'm looking at it is like, how can we go do a value add? You can go do a Matterport. You can do drone footage. You can do uh, very nice flyers. You can have Fiverr VAs go do this. You can go spend a couple, a thousand bucks and have a amazing marketing flyer that you can not only put up on a listing on a LoopNet or CoStar or Crexy, but you can also blast that out as a PDF, as a mailer to all potential tenants, to all potential brokers, as anyone else in that kind of area that may be what you can identify using technology to say, would you be interested in this space? Here's the thing. Here's what we can do. We'll, we're willing to commit TIs. We're willing to do something else related to that at this. And then if you get demand, so you can create a value add scenario while you're in escrow. And what you're trying to do is remove risk from your acquisition while you're in escrow. And while in escrow, you can still cancel. And so you're not really in a place of losing your money, but that intensity of being in escrow is real. You learn more while being in escrow than you will learn in reading books and going to schools and going to colleges and doing all those things. You're going to learn more because it's intense. I feel like I'm buying a $10 million building right now. So we need to do a lot of stuff. A lot of people don't understand how to do due diligence. So they don't do that or they just bury their head in their sand and then they close on the property and just hope nothing ever comes up and goes wrong. And so you let's, go, let's well, sit on that. Yeah. And so when I go, so first you, what you want to be doing is you want to be very proactive, be quick to get in something in escrow that makes sense. There's very little risk to being in escrow. You then experience a little bit of risk by doing due diligence, inspection reports, engineering, drone footages, checking out, flying out the property. That's a little bit of risk into the thousands and tens of thousands of dollars. Maybe if it's a super complex deal, maybe a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand dollars But I go, your risk is much, much lower. Let's call it tens of thousand dollars, $10,000 to do due diligence on this property. That's a $5 million deal. Mm-hmm. So then when you're proactive, you've got this property in escrow, you're now collectively racing towards a close of escrow time. Your goal is to remove all that risk that would be potentially losing $5 million or whatever that deal was. And so you can go through this and you're looking and identifying those things that we talked about earlier, like, is there contamination? Is, is the structure, is there something wrong with it? Is there a functional obsolescence? Is the code up to date? Are there zoning issues? Has the zoning changed or never changed and is grandfathered in? So then you couldn't get financing on that. And so when you can start eliminating all of these things and variables that are risky, or at least having a solution to them. So they're like, Hey, there's the roof is all messed up. I need $250,000 off the price. 
because, oh my gosh, you told me this, but based on the conditions I need, you're reducing that risk. That also allows to you to exercise and do some things around like that value add component. Like here's my new tenant that I have signed on the lease. That's going to pay $15 a year, triple net. That also helps with your financing. Then you also know like how much money am I going to have to put down on this deal? And if there's are some extreme cases where you buy something that's completely vacant, you sign a new lease to fix it up and it's going to cost you $3 million to fix it up to do the tenant improvement. But when it's done, it's worth $20 million. Then you can go take that package to the bank. I'm buying this for six. I'm going to spend $3 million fixing it up to get this tenant in there. And I need some working capital and other things. So I need a loan for 50% of its future value. Once that tenant moves in, that becomes a very easy yes for a bank because they're like, do you want to do a 50% loan on this property? And you already have the future valuation to be like, yes, we want to do a 50% loan. So then you can get into that deal with little to no money down. You can go structure a $10 million deal and do no money and have $10 million equity in that property, either for cash flow or refinance out or sell it off or do whatever you ultimately want to do with that property. But what you've done is you've used that in escrow time to start eliminating the risk and doing that value add understanding or what you're going to do. You then have, this is my business plan in which I'm going to execute. And when you go share that to the bank, to investors, to others, like people are like, man, that makes sense. Oh, cool. You're buying something that's super discounted. And so you're paying vacant prices or distressed pricing, but you're getting occupied values. And so I go, Mm -hmm. so those are some of the things that you can do in commercial real estate that you cannot do in multifamily. You can't go necessarily fix up an apartment. And so that's where like, I'm looking for deals that have value add components that I can go drive new vision. I'm not just grabbing onto this and hoping that this tenant stays in there and I'm going to collect this cash flow. Like, and so I'm always looking for something that allows me to manipulate or craft the future to what it is that I'm going to be doing. And then through that value add exercise is how I can drive uh, value and vision into what this collective deal is. Okay. So a couple questions, observations, clarifications for the people listening that are completely mind blown right now. So first and foremost, mindset, right? We've talked about this. We've talked about all talk about this on the show people and this is something that jason helps me with is people are like okay i want twenty thousand dollars a month in cash flow i want to get up to that 10 million dollar net worth that's going to take this many years what jake is talking about he's doing it in a deal like this is possible people the people are doing this and they're on the freaking show and they're telling you how to do this so it's just it's really cool to be able to see all the different perspectives of it and see that, like you said, as much effort, obviously there's career capital that goes into this and there's 10,000 hours that go into it because a lot of industry terminology and secrets of what to look for, what not to look for. So a couple of different questions that I have here, and I'm trying to think about how to phrase them so that we can knock them out pretty quickly to jump into hospitality, like that vertical. The three questions that I have 
and that you can tackle any way that you want to in whatever order you want to. First question is, so we've said who commercial real estate isn't for. People that want complete passivity, go be an LP. Who is commercial real estate for and why commercial real estate is one question too. How much money should people have in their war chest, liquid, to pursue commercial real estate as a generality? Because this is obviously going to differ with the deals. And then question three would be for the person that's getting into commercial real estate. So you have the person that now knows why they want to do commercial real estate. They have the capital that you say that they should have. How should they best go about taking down that first deal? It sounds to me like they need to find someone as a mentor to partner with from what you're saying. It sounds like they need to have an operator that's done this for them to partner with and then maybe bring the capital. Those are the three questions I want to close on with before we jump into hospitality. Yeah. So there's, we, we could do a show on each, each. of those questions <laughs> individually. And, and so let's start with why commercial real estate. So years ago, I read Real Estate Riches by Dolph DeRuz. He was a rich dad advisor at one point. And so he focused on more of the commercial real estate space. And so he's got a, a PhD, not in real estate. I think it was actually in something else. And he did his first deal. He made like more money on his first deal than he was being offered for the in- entire annual salary of when he was leaving as being this PhD kind of person. <laughs> so he was like, why would I go do a job um, that pays me less than I just did in a deal that took me 20 hours worth of work or understanding. So commercial real estate and, and, and something that he wrote or in that book stuck with me is every thing, every amount of wealth ultimately ends up in real estate. And you can see this as an example, Larry Ellison, Bill Gates, some of these very wealthy people, where do they put their money? They don't sit in cash. They go buy like an island. They buy real estate all farmland. Yeah. They buy 75, 80, hundred thousand million acres of farmland. They go buy real estate. And, and part of that is real estate and all like 80, 90% of all wealth is in real estate. You make it in tech or in business or in these other things, but then you go and it lives in perpetuity in real estate. And so for me, it was just like, man, if I could just go start learning this when I'm young and younger and continue along that thing, most people are waiting until they're 65 years old to go start investing into real estate, or they're going to start investing into commercial deals. And that's you know fine for them to do that. But like even their first initial deals, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to invest into the wrong deal or with the wrong sponsor, or make the wrong assumptions. So I was like, by the time I'm 65, like I'll be like, oh, I have 40 something years experience. So I was like, it's a different place. So I just felt like I can play a very long game in the real estate space because every, all money ultimately comes to real estate And then also related is 80, 90% of the laws are written as favorable benefits to real estate. Because if 90% of the wealth in the world in the United States is sitting in real estate, guess what? These are the most powerful people on the planet that are like, we're going to make the laws fit 
protecting our wealth. So there's going to be, you know, protections of landlord laws. There's going to be protections mm-hmm. of taxes. And that's one of the biggest things that I've seen that people that are high income earning kind of W2 jobs, doctors that are making a million, salesmen that are making one, $2 million a year, they're paying 50, 60% in taxes. In taxes. Like they're getting murdered. And I'm like, and they're focused on lowering their mortgage rate from, you know, 3.8 to 3%. And I was like, you're going to save what, $800 a month by lowering your mortgage rate. But I go, but if you go buy commercial deal, you become as far as a real estate professional. And there's certain dynamics around a high income earner. Maybe their partner and spouse becomes a real estate professional, but you can then write off and then start uh, structuring a lot of these things. So then like, instead of paying $500,000 in taxes a year, you can take that and go pay $100,000 in taxes or pay no money in taxes. So what's more beneficial to you is to go make more money or to save on the money that you're already making. And so to the short order, like the fastest thing that I can oftentimes see. And when I talk to people that have some levels of success that have achieved high income earning status is like saving taxes is by far and away the easiest and fastest thing that we can toggle because in not only that, you can do that instantly. You don't have to create these, the value add. You don't have to go build the building. You don't have to do that. These are paper losses. These are things that are structured because the tax code has been written by everyone that owns commercial real estate to benefit the people that own commercial real estate. So that's why I was like, to me, like that makes so much sense to why someone should be playing in that space and why they should have allocations into that space. And so it is not a get rich quick kind of typical process. It's a get rich slow but a pretty steady eddy thing that over time, if you keep doing that, buy and hold forever. Even if you overpaid for it five years ago, 10 years ago, eight years, you know, whatever it is, if you're just holding forever, oftentimes it it pretty much works out. And talk about the lease types for people that are listening that maybe have heard a triple net lease, but they don't really understand it. So there's, so yeah, net lease, double, triple, absolute. Those are terms you can Google each one of those and they'll do a much better illustration. But so a net lease or triple net lease is that the tenant is going to pay all the expenses related to the operating of that building. So you'll have something like the property taxes, property taxes go up every year, that net of that expense is passed on to the tenant and the tenant pays for that. If the the CAMs, so the community or common area maintenance and, and whatever that expense is to mow the lawns, to irrigate the planters, to clean up the building, to pick up the trash, that common area maintenance is passed on to the tenant. Say, here you go. Here's your pro rata share of that. Then your insurance hey, we're insuring this building. We're going to cover this and make sure that it doesn't, if it burns down, it covers your business and those other things. But here's the cost of that insurance. All of those items typically go up every year. You have insurance premium increases. Your property taxes go up. You're paying the maintenance guy or the lawn care provider or the trash 
all of those things go up. And so when you have a triple net lease, what it does is it allows you to protect and understand the cash flow that you are going to have coming in. When you are a full service gross or a modified gross or some of these other different ways in which you structure some leases is as those expenses go up, you're actually making less and less money because you're like, we're renting to that tenant for $10,000 a month. That worked great when it was $10,000 a month and your expenses were a thousand. So you're like, I'm making $9,000, that Delta, that profit, as those expenses go from a thousand to 1500 to 2000, three, four, five, six years down the road, you're like, I'm only making $8,000 a month. Or I've seen it in other situations go where you have this super old lease and they're not covering these expenses. And you're like, this sucks. Like I, I don't like them as a tenant. They oftentimes claim. So then what happens is people start trying to eat away or not maintain the property because mm-hmm. they're not being able to cover that. And so that also oftentimes identifies where there's deferred maintenance issues in a commercial building. And you can say something's not going right there. And so why you'd want that net lease. And there's some caveats to that about they may be responsible for the building, but you're responsible for the roof. You're responsible for the roof leaks or you're responsible if for the HVAC units. So it's still a net lease, but you cover those. And then like in the absolute net lease is you're not doing anything. The HVAC goes out, deal with it, tenant, deal with it. And you just handle yourself and you do it. You, they may have you approve some of their doing, Hey, we're putting a new roof on. Is that okay? And you'd be like, well, what kind of roof? It's a new TPO roof. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's fine. Who's the thing? Did it, I get covered insurance? They still check with you, even though they're paying for those. So that creates mechanisms. You still have to manage the maintenance people. You still have to manage like what happens when somebody goes and breaks out your window. You probably mm-hmm. have to deal with that. What happens when the, all the service contracts related to that property, there, it's still work. And But collectively, there is possibilities to do this on little to no work. That's what and, and why the differences of the lays really do matter. But you have to do a lot of accounting work for net lease deals, triple net lease deals. You have to count all the invoices you have to account for. And they often, and the tenants often want a reconciliation of that. Send me all the receipts for all the work that was done. Send me that because you're telling me it's $3,000 a month. Should be like, so there's a lot of accounting that you need to do to make sure that you need to hire them and make sure they showed up and did the thing. Did they do it properly? Did they do? So again, there is work related to these investment deals, or at least I have yet to find one. You know what? They're ground leases. Ground leases, you do nothing. Ground leases. You rent the, you rent the, the ground out. So you just be like, give me this amount of money for the ground. And so you'll see that like a a Dunkin' Donuts or a a McDonald's or one of these kind of, they're going to build their own building. They're going to manage that. They're going to handle everything. And, but you're like, great, give me $3,000 a month for that land. And I'm going to do nothing. I don't, you know, I don't care if your thing burns down. I don't care if it, whatever. So there are some, but those are uh, a lot more, Difficult to to structure as far as to find. They have to fit a very specific unique criteria. Yeah. yeah, and that's you'll see like a mall developer will do that, and they'll ground lease the parcels on the outskirts. Sometimes they'll sell them. Sometimes they'll just ground lease them. 
on intersections, those will oftentimes be under a ground lease because it makes sense for a, a gas station or a, a drive-through right off the freeway. So there's times in which you can do that, but that's typically the land developer is taking raw land and converting it to something else and then says, hey, I don't want to give up the land, but if you pay me this, I'll let you build whatever you want. Okay, so a lot of information. A lot of expertise. So the one question I'll ask quickly, uh, quickly, you also asked about how much money should you have? Sure. Like you don't have to have any money. You know, honestly, if you, if this is what you want to start doing, you can figure out how to do things with no money. I don't know if we talked about the, the guy in Miami from Venezuela Mm-mm. that built the high rise. Okay. So this is okay. Great for mindset. So I've done a few real estate deals and I was like, Hey, I want to, I want to build a skyscraper. I want to build high rise. And like, I was like, man, now I've done these hundreds of millions of dollars worth of deals. I was finishing up grad school. So a master's degree in in real estate and international real estate and finance. And and I met this guy down in Miami and he just finished building like this 42 story condo project as a kid. And I was like, and I say kid, he was like 28. What? He was like 28. And I was just like, Dude, wow. send me his information. I was like, bro, like you just go. built this 42 story. Wow. Like, how'd you do that? Was your dad a developer? Did you inherit? Did you drug dealer? I was like, I'm, I'm very confused on how a 28 year old person just built a 42 story building. And I was like, were you in construction? He's, I just got here from Venezuela three years ago with no money. And I've never done real estate in my entire life. And I'm just so, I'm even more confused now. Like, and I was like, bro, like what, what? what?" And he's no, I was just told that America is the land of opportunity. You just come here and then you can just go create and do these things and, and take action. And I was just like, okay. And he, so I just saw that there was this old broker sign grown over with weeds that was said for sale. And I called them up and I said, Hey, this land you have here that says for sale, is it still for sale? And they said, yes, it is. It's however much amount of money, $5 million for this piece of land because it's in Miami beach. And he said, Oh, that's fantastic. Great. Let's do a deal. So he took that. He saw down the street was an architect and a builder that was building this other high rise kind of thing. They said, Hey, could you build one of those over there on this lot? And they went, Oh yeah, it's almost actually very similar. We could almost build almost the exact same building right there. It worked really well. And they're like, Oh, he's wow. That's great. Yeah. The agent, they said, Hey, you should talk to the agent. They've been doing all the sales for this, this deal. And so you should talk to them. And they went and talked and they said, Oh my gosh, like we have overwhelming demand for this. We can actually start doing sales for you do up some renders, do up some things and start getting soliciting people that are wanting to buy that potential property. And so he's in Miami is a weird place as well, where you can just walk around on a street corner and say, Hey, I'm building a $70 million tower project. And there you'll probably find somebody that has some money that can partner with you. Mm-hmm. They're like, Oh, that's amazing. And be like, here's some of the pre-sales. Here's some of the things. And I need to do this to complete the plans and the architecture and the other things like that. And they're like, wow, that seems so cheap. I only got to put a million bucks up to go finish the plans for that. And we're in escrow and we're working towards it. Great. 
So then they got enough sales where they were selling out through the building. So then the bank was like, oh yeah, with all your deposits and the way this thing's done, like we'll finance this deal. Like you don't, great. That's a good builder. That's a good architect. That's a good location. We have all these pre-sales. Great. Let's do the deal. And so he started building out that building immediately had all the pre-sold out. And so he ended up making $30 million, I think it was, on the first deal, on the first piece of real estate that he ever bought in his entire life, straight away, fresh off of coming in from Venezuela into Miami. And so I'm just like, it hit me over the head like a two by four, where I was just like, oh my gosh, how many of these limitations are my own self limitations. No, oh, yeah. And the reality was like it was all me holding myself back thinking I don't have enough experience. I don't haven't done enough of those deals. I haven't done X Y and Z. And so what happened and what that was is an illustration to me that you don't need money to do a deal. It is not a lack of resources, it's a lack of resourcefulness. resourcefulness. And so like when I was like, dude, oh my gosh. And so it's just a mindset shift. Everything is a construct of imagination. Someone had a vision that this kid from Venezuela looked at that and said, I think I could build and do something there. This is the land of opportunity. All you have to do is take action. All you have to do is take action. How much money did he have? How many market studies did he do? How many of them? None of those. He took action. And by taking action, it created and manifest something that then became what was my dream project of, oh my gosh, at some point in my future, I can do when I've now had 200, 300, $400 million worth of experience, then I can do one of those. When the reality is that's not the case. Someone is doing your dream life, your dream project, your dream experience with less just because they simply believed in themselves and took action. Action Academy Podcast. Hit the soundboard, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Fired up. Okay. Let's go. So let's talk. So we got the mindset. So to answer your question, you don't need any money to start. Doing okay. So things. yeah. So no money. Okay. So we got that part now for time's sake here, because I know that you got to run and do some stuff. And I got, I'm about to hop on another one too. Uh, best resources. What are some resources that people can go to? Because for commercial real estate, obviously, yes, you can manipulate the lease. You can do a lot more value add without having to do actual stuff to the building. Like with multifamily, you could almost have to break it down to the studs, rebuild it. That's what they're looking for here. You're just manipulating a lease and you can be able to have the triple net lease. You can have all this different stuff. There's thousands of different benefits to doing commercial real estate. What are some resources that somebody can go look at besides obviously your book, plug your book, and where else can they go to dive into this now? So that they can know what to look for when they're taking down this $42 million condo. Resources. You know, I think things about being around other people, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. I think mindset of that is it's peer pressure. And so then your group, obviously we're part of GoBundance, a mastermind group. You're collectively getting around people that you're just like, my mind's blown all the time. It has nothing to do with age. Uh, there are people that have less experience, different understandings of things. And so it just, it changes 
your mind, it, it becomes a paradigm shift for you. And for me, at least is being around other people that are proactively creating their life and just, and being alongside of them is like, it, they drag you up, the tide gets raised. And so what does that do for somebody that's looking to get a commercial real estate, get around other people that are doing the thing that you want to do, go to, if it's a meetup or to a club or a, or an investment committee or whatever group, a mastermind that's doing the things that you want to do, spend that money. And it's not going to necessarily be cheap. There's sometimes where it's, I hired a coach and it's $2,000, $3,000 a month. And you'd be like, great. But did they give you a lot more intensive focus? And that $30,000 allowed you to go make $3 million. Mm -hmm. Did that being around that in that mastermind group that maybe cost 10 grand, did that 10 grand allow you the new opening of the aperture and that you poured into it that made you, you know, $10 million? Absolutely. Those things are possible. And so I say that because there is no like true real hack. Like you just go do this, you do that. The holistic approach of you shifting your mindset becomes one of the most beneficial things that you can do because now everything is possible. And it's not just about doing this deal is like, how do you do all the deals? How can you get even, and they're going to give you stage advice. There's people that give me stage advice and things that we talked about on, on the previous show about Robert Kiyosaki, just throwing out comments of be wary young man of failure and these other things. I wasn't in the place that could hear it or listen to it. But if you are in an environment where you have people that have a little bit more stage wisdom, and it's not just one person, but it's multiple, they may also help you prevent from doing the wrong thing. And I think collectively, when you're in a group that cares about each other, that wants the tide to be raised, and then you have access to those types of people is that, Hey, Brian, I need advice on this because you do that or Hey, Aaron, this or Maddie or whoever else. And so you can dive into very specifics of, I don't know how to do this, but I know somebody that does, and they're going to be able to give you a much more condensed shortcut version and, and allow you to see the other side. And there's times I've told people to not do a deal. I would not do this deal. They did it anyway, and that's fine for them. They may, and it may actually work out just fine for them. Mm -hmm. Maybe it doesn't as far as I can give them that advice because I'm collectively in a group like that. So screw your book then. Nobody read the book. Screw catching knives. Yeah. I was like, and honestly, that that's a great, cause it's again, building your mind, getting around the right team, doing those things. Those yeah. are good tactics gives you, and, and really, especially in a distressed environment that I think there is going to be a little bit more distress because part people are just betting on the come forever. Mm -hmm. Interest rates being super low forever, rents going up forever. And, and I still think there's going to be the vast majority of real estate will be just fine. Let's go, brother. Let's get you to that. Thanks again, as always, for coming on, buddy. Love having you as a friend. Love having you as a mentor. This has been phenomenal. And it's been truly a masterclass in commercial real estate. Go get your blood drawn, dog. Go get your blood. <laughs> this has been Brian and Jake Harris signing off with the Action Academy podcast. 
You've been listening to the Action Academy podcast, helping you to choose what you want with who you want when you want. You've been given the gift of freedom. Don't turn your back on that. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And we hope you've gotten some practical and useful information. Make sure to like, rate, and review the show. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hook up with us on social media. Remember, financial independence is freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Freedom fly.